Greetings, fellow Earthlings. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. Please do subscribe and share if you're not already. All right, let's get into it. The Stereo App. Oh, yeah. If you're not already in the Stereo App, get on it. Get with the program. You can join for free and talk freely with people from all over the world on stereo um, doesn't cost a thing there's many 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 interesting people from all over and i highly suggest it highly recommend it you can also then upload your uh show from stereo to anchor and have it distributed many many places so here we go we are jumping in to Today, Memorial Day, being the 100-year anniversary of the race, you know, the racially motivated massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I want to start off, you know, saying today is May 31st, and here in the U.S., we memorialize this as Memorial Day. So we celebrate fallen soldiers and the sacrifice that they gave to our country, which is immense. And I don't take anything away from that. I feel for all the families and all the individual people, anybody that experienced a loss. Um, I'm speaking to a a bigger picture here and kind of, you know, the fact that we really haven't had a just war since World War II. But our media tells us here in the U.S. to celebrate the soldiers that keep us free. Uh, you can hear these commercials all over the the radio right now, the internet. You know, another quote is "Freedom isn't free," right? So, how do we interpret that? Does that mean we have to export the wars to other countries before they come here? That's kind of the the story we're sold. But you know, if you do your homework, the you know every war since World War II, basically. Um, there hasn't been a quote-unquote good war since World War II, and even that's debatable, right? Um, the Bush family sold oil to the Nazis during World War II, Prescott Bush, the uh, Grandpa Bush, if you will. Bush Sr., you know, was... Uh, so the, let's talk about the Bush family for just one second. Prescott Bush, father of Bush Sr., sold oil to the Nazis in defiance of Congress, um, and that oil was enabled the Nazi war machine to keep moving. If they didn't have oil, they would have come to a screeching halt. So that's crazy. He should be a war criminal. They should not be political royalty, right? Then Bush Sr., you know, was implicated, found guilty of the Iran-Contra scandal in which he was overseeing the smuggling of three tons per plane load of cocaine into Mena, Arkansas, enter Bill Clinton, Mena, Arkansas being the most, airstrip, most remote airstrip in uh, the United States. There's um, some great documentaries you can watch about that. I will uh, try to link to them in the comments. And if anybody's interested, I will look it up right now and let you know. But there's a great documentary you can also look, about, look up um, to hear about the kind of the behind the scenes truth about World War II. You know, was that really a just war? Turns out we didn't need to drop drop a single bomb on Japan, but we dropped two, apparently just to intimidate the Russians. But um, that was 
I learned that in this documentary done by Oliver Stone called The Untold History of the United States. Um, so why are we celebrating our military? We're currently supporting a coup in Venezuela, Bolivia, and Nicaragua. Um, currently, Iran is currently sending a warship towards Venezuela to possibly help, possibly deliver supplies. We've issued a stern official warning that that is not a quote unquote good idea and will not be received well. So I don't know what that means. If we'll attack an Iranian vessel just for trying to deliver aid to Venezuela. Um, once again, Venezuela, the, the leader Maduro was democratically elected. This is an international, you know, governance board proved that that election was legit. So we have no business interfering there, except they're sitting on a huge oil supply, shale oil, right? It's really, really dirty, hard to extract, but you know, the oil giants have been wanting that for decades. Um, so what I want, you know, it, the real deal about our military policy is we say support our troops, but then we don't care about our veterans, right? Um, our foreign policy basically calls what the CIA calls blowback. And this means that once we go out and do dirt somewhere, that there's repercussions for that, right? So by occupying Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and having bases on people's holy lands, groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS were created to combat our foreign policy, basically, which is to go to foreign countries, occupy them, and extract their resources. Right. So Afghanistan has one of the world's largest supplies of lithium, which is the key ingredient in electric car batteries. Do you think the country of Afghanistan is going to get rich from their own resources? Oh, hell no. Prime example, Africa, is, you know, it has more resources than any country in the world. But, you know, the colonial powers, imperialistic colonial powers divvied that country up, literally. And, you know, the De Beers family is Dutch, and they basically have control of 90% of the world's diamond supply. How, why, and why do we tolerate that to this day? Good question. Um, so anyway, what should we memorialize on Memorial Day? I'm going to get to the message in here, here in a second, but just finishing my little intro here. What should we memorialize? How about countries we have bombed? How about elections that we have overthrown in democratic countries? How about people murdered by the police? 1,000 people per year murdered by the police. Uh, just the other day was the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And in the year since then, 1,000 people murdered by the police, just like the year before. So absolutely nothing has changed. Another harrowing statistic is uh, that 20 veterans commit suicide a day due to the atrocities that they have either committed or that they have witnessed, right? This is brutal. And this is coming from the v, you know, uh, VA.gov. VA releases 2020 national veteran suicide. 20, well, okay, so 17.6. In 2018, uh, let me pull up the whole article so I'm not talking out of my ass here. But in 2018, it was 17.6 soldiers. So roughly 20, 20 per day. Um, decreased by 2.4%. Um, 
Okay, so that's the most recent stats they have. And that's from uh, a report from 2005 through 2018. Suicide rate from 2017 to 2018. Roughly 17.6 people per day. That is brutal. So that's a nationwide epidemic that you will never hear about on the news. Um, and those are the soldiers that we're being told to support. But then, you know, we're told the ones that are killing themselves, oh, they, they, they went crazy or they're drug addicts. or uh, No, it's, it's the, the repercussions of war. All right, before I go on to the uh, articles I've got here, let's go ahead and hear a couple messages. Well, I, that's why, you know, I always wondered, as someone that was raised conservative, I always wondered why the hell um, isn't Black Wall Street or the Trail of Tears shown in our history books, you know? Why don't they show true history? Why don't they show how wars like Vietnam could have totally been avoided? Instead, they teach us to fight and to defend tooth and nail, you know, that we went to these wars and all of these acts. We have to start taking accountability for our actions um, in order for our country to move forward. And um, I don't know, man, so much to say, but thanks for having this convo. Roastmasters, thank you so much. Uh, that was a very enlightening, enlightened comment, and I very much appreciate it. Yeah, um, one of the rumors that uh, Vietnam went on so long is because the CIA was smuggling a bunch of heroin out of there in body bags. You know, um, how do you think the heroin gets to the inner cities? It's not some entrepreneurial young lad in Brooklyn that's like, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to smuggle drugs all the way across the world through multiple government safety nets, through, you know, the national security defense of the United States. Yeah, good luck. Unless you're working with the CIA. Good luck. Good luck. And if you are working with the CIA, no problem. Something else that blows my mind is the fact that um, Japanese, uh, the Japanese and the Jewish receive reparations from the American government. However, the black, uh, the African, the African American community and the black community, you know, um, hasn't received any reparations yet. <sighs> Crazy. But thanks for having this convo. I just followed you. Keep spreading the truth, brother. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Roastmasters. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, um, this is harrowing. You know, I'm I'm kind of ashamed to say it, but I until the George Floyd thing happened and I started doing a bunch of research, I didn't even know about the Tulsa massacre. So here we go. We're going to jump into it. Today is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. Not a riot, a massacre. When white mob destroyed black wall street this is an article from democracy now democracynow.org published may 28th 2021 so just a couple few days ago um so monday memorial day marks the 100th anniversary of the tulsa race massacre one of the single greatest acts of racist terror in u.s history in 1921, the thriving African-American neighborhood of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was known as Black Wall Street for its concentration of successful Black-owned businesses before it was burned to the ground by a white mob. The violence grew from a confrontation at the Tulsa courthouse, where whites had gathered to abduct and lynch a jailed Black man 
who had been wrongfully accused, wrongfully accused of assaulting a white woman. Black residents of Greenwood arrived to stop the lynching. Gunshots erupted, after which the white mob set upon Greenwood for 18 hours of mass murder, arson, and looting that would become known as the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. An estimated 300 African Americans were killed, over 1,000 injured, 10,000 were left homeless as the racist mob, some of them deputized and armed by Tulsa law enforcement, along with the members of the Ku Klux Klan, terrorized the black population. Airplanes were used to drop dynamite and crude incendiary bombs on Greenwood, ultimately burning over 35 city blocks. 1,200 homes were destroyed along with countless businesses. The actual number of dead will never be known as bodies were tossed into mass graves or thrown in the river. Yeah. Last week, a House Judiciary Subcommittee held a hearing to address the ongoing impacts of the Tulsa massacre. Three African-American survivors testified in favor of reparations. Viola Fletcher, her younger brother, Hughes Van Ellis, who's 100 years old and 105-year-old, Lessie Benningfield Randall. This is part of their testimony, beginning with Viola Fletcher. Oh, man. So talk about heavy, right? This is, this is intense. Viola Fletcher, I'm a survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Two weeks ago, I celebrated my 107th birthday. Today, I'm visiting Washington, D.C. for the first time in my life. I'm here seeking justice, and I'm asking my country to acknowledge what happened in Tulsa in 1921. This is so brutal. So brutal. The night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men being shot, black bodies lying in the streets. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not. And other survivors do not. And our descendants do not. Hugh Van Ellis. We live with it every day. And the thought of what Greenwood was and what it could have been, we aren't just black and white pictures on a screen. We were flesh and blood. I was there when it happened. I'm still here. Lessie Benningfield Randall. It seems like justice in America is always so slow or not possible for black people. Oh, brutal. So there we have testimony from the lone three survivors of that horrible, horrible moment in U.S. history uh, that has never been reckoned with, that we have never come to terms with, and that we are still suffering repercussions from this very day. 
um, you know, this, you know, knowledge of this nullifies the whole, you know, pull yourself, not only this, but countless, countless episodes like this, um, you know, uh, in another article I'm going to read here from the Smithsonian Magazine, we find out this has happened in state after state after state after state. Um, so, you know, it's not an isolated incident, um, very much like the continued persecution of Native Americans, uh, it seems. So, you know, it's a heavy topic, but it's reality. And on Memorial Day, instead of, uh, you know, celebrating war and celebrating soldiers, I think we should look at the repercussions of violence and the repercussions of our policies. And once again, nothing against any of our sold, uh, fallen soldiers or their families. You know, I'm not talking about individual people. I'm talking about our foreign policy and the leaders that send us to war and why and where they send us. It seems to be only to extract resources, right? Um, have they ever apologized for the for the lie that was the weapons of mass destruction and all the people that you know all of our poor poor soldiers who either you know lost their lives or came home just you know a mess because of what they saw and had to partake in no i've never heard a reckoning for that so that's what i'm speaking about is policy policy not people um so anyway smithsonian magazine Breaking ground, a long-lost manuscript contains a searing eyewitness account of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. This is, uh, this is intense. An Oklahoma lawyer details the attack by hundreds of whites on the thriving black neighborhood where hundreds died 95 years ago. This was published uh, in 2016. That's why they say 95 years ago, because today, once again, is the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. This is a first-person account by B.C. Franklin titled The Tulsa Race Riot and Three of Its Victims. It was recovered from a storage area in 2015 and donated to the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. So this is written by Allison Keyes, smithsonianmag.com, May 27th, 2016 let's get into it the 10-page manuscript is written on yellowed legal paper and folded in thirds but the words and eyewitness account of the may 31st 1921 racial massacre that destroyed what was known as tulsa oklahoma's black wall street are searing I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted, and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling upon the top of my office building. Down East Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top. And then another, and another, and another building began to burn from their top, wrote Buck colbert franklin 1879 to 1960. the oklahoma lawyer fathered father of famed african-american historian john hope franklin 1915 to 2009 
was describing the attack by hundreds of whites on the thriving black neighborhood known as Greenwood in the booming oil town. Lurid flames roared and belched and licked their forked tongues into the air. Smoke ascended into the sky in thick black volumes, and amid it all, the plains, now a dozen or more in number, still hummed and darted here and there with the agility of natural birds in the air. Franklin writes that he had left his law office, locked the door, and descended to the foot of the steps. The sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they came from, and I knew all too well why every burning building first caught from the top, he continues. I paused and waited for an opportune time to escape. Where, oh where, is our splendid fire department with its half dozen stations, I asked myself. Is the city in conspiracy with the mob? Franklin's towering manuscript now resides among the collection of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. The previously unknown document was found last year, purchased from a private seller. In the manuscript, Franklin tells of his encounters with an African American veteran named Mr. Ross. It begins in 1917 when Franklin met Ross. Uh, while recruiting young black men to fight in World War I, speaking of Memorial Day. It picks up in 1921 with his own eyewitness account of the Tulsa race riots and ends 10 years later. Come on, website. Um, damn, website's glitching, pardon me. Ten years later with the story of how Mr. Ross's life had been destroyed by the riots. Two original photographs of Franklin were part of the collection, part of the donation. One depicts him operating with his associates out of a Red Cross tent five days after the riot. Um, I wept. I just wept. It's so beautifully written and so powerful, and he just takes you there. Franklin marvels. You wonder what happened to the other people. What was the emotional impact of having your community destroyed and having to flee for your lives? The younger Franklin says Tulsa had been in denial over the fact that people were cruel enough to bomb the black community from the air in private planes and that black people were machine gunned down in the streets. The issue was economics. Franklin explains that Native Americans and African Americans became wealthy thanks to the discovery of oil in the early 1900s on what had previously been seen as worthless land. That's what leads to Greenwood being called the Black Wall Street. It had restaurants and furriers and jewelry stores and hotels, John W. Franklin explains, and the white mobs looted the homes and businesses before they set fire to the community. For years, black women would see white women walking down the street in their jewelry and snatch it off. Imagine, imagine seeing somebody walk down the street with your jewelry and knowing that they got it from looting your home and then burning your home down. Oh my God. Museum curator Paul Gardulo, Paul Gardulo, who has spent five years 
along with Franklin, collecting artifacts from the riot in the aftermath, says it was the frustration of poor whites not knowing what to do with a successful black community and in coalition with the city government were given permission to do what they did. It's a scenario that you see happen from place to place around our country, from Washington, I'm sorry, from Wilmington, Delaware, to Washington, D.C., to Chicago. And these are in some ways mass lynchings, he says. As in other places, the Tulsa race riot started with newspaper reports that a black man had assaulted a white elevator operator. He was arrested. And Franklin says black World War I vets rushed to the courthouse to prevent a lynching. Then whites were deputized and handed weapons and the shooting starts and then it gets out of hand, Franklin says. It went on for two days until the entire black community is burned down. More than 35 blocks were destroyed, along with more than 1,200 homes. Some 300 people died, mostly blacks. The National Guard was called out after the governor declared martial law and imprisoned all blacks that were not already in jail. More than 6,000 people were held, according to the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum, some for as long as eight days. Survivors talk about how the city was shut down in the riot, Gardulo says. They shut down the phone systems, the railway. They wouldn't let the Red Cross in. There was complicity between the city government and the mob. It was mob rule for two days, and the result was the complete devastation of the community. Gardulo adds that the formulaic stereotype about black young, about young black men raping young white women was used with great success from the end of slavery forward to the middle of the 20th century. You know, there's movies about that. What is that? To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Uh, it was a formula that resulted in untold stories of lynchings across the nation. Gardulo says the truth of the matter has to do with the threat that black power, black economic power, black cultural power, black success posed to individuals and the whole system of white supremacy. That's embedded within our nation's history. Franklin says he is issued, has issues with the words often used to describe the attack that decimated the black community. The term riot is contentious because it assumes that black people started the violence as they were accused of doing by whites. Franklin says, we increasingly use the term massacre, or I use the European term pogrom, Never heard that term before. Interesting. Among the artifacts Gardulo and John W. Franklin have obtained are a handful of pennies collected off the ground from a young boy's home burned to the ground during the riot. Items with labels saying this was looted from a black church during the riot and postcards with photos from the race riots, some showing burning corpses. Oh, my God. Riot postcards were often distributed crassly and cruelly as a way to sell white supremacy, Gardulo says. At the time, they were shown as documents that were shared between the white community members to demonstrate their white power. Later, they became part of the body of evidence that was used during the commission, of repar commission for reparation. In 2000, that's so brutal. They had postcards made up some with burning bodies on them. And do you think they would leave those on the doorsteps of, of black families as a method of intimidation? I bet they did. Bet they did. 
so you could mail them to people. Wow, that is so brutal. Oh, in 2001, the Tulsa Race Riot Commission issued a report detailing the damage from the riots, but legislative and legal attempts to gain reparations for the survivors have failed. The Tulsa Race Riots aren't mentioned in most American history textbooks, and many people don't know that they happened. I'm one. I learned about this after the murder of George Floyd, unfortunately. Curator Paul Gardulo says the crucial question is why not? Right? Well, because it upsets our whole myth of American exceptionalism, of not being a racist power structure. Uh, yeah, so it, it, it destroys that myth that we live under. Um, I don't know why that myth is so important because it's as truth comes out and we don't acknowledge it, then that myth becomes just a bold-faced lie, right? And nobody has respect for a bold-faced liar. So it's one thing if, well, you know, that was then and this is now, but you have to acknowledge and make amends. And in this case, that's, um, that's reparations. Throughout American history, there has been a vast silence about the atrocities that were performed in the service of white history. There, is a lot, there are a lot of silences in relation to this story, and a lot of guilt and shame, Gardulo explains. That, that's one reason why the events of May 31st and June 1st, 1921, will be featured in an exhibition at the new museum called The Power of Place. Gardulo says the title is about more than geography. It's the power of certain places, about displacement, movement, about what place means for people, he says. This is about emotion and culture and memory. How do you tell a story about destruction? How do you balance the fortitude and resilience of people in response to that devastation? How do you fill the silences? How do you address the silences about a story that this community has held in silence for so long and a denial for so long. Despite the devastation, the black community in Tulsa was able to rebuild on the ashes of its neighborhood, partly because Buck Col Colbert, uh, excuse me, Buck Colbert Franklin battled all the way to the Oklahoma Supreme Court to defeat a law that would have effectively prevented African Americans from doing so. By 1925, there was again a thriving black business district. John W. Franklin says his grandfather's manuscript is important for people to see because it deals with the suppressed history. This is an eyewitness account from a reputable source about what he saw happen. His grandson, John W. Franklin says, it, was def it is definite, definitely relevant to today because I think our notions of justice are based partially on our own history and our knowledge of history. But we are an ahistorical society in that we don't know our past. That's a great statement. Some of our past and some of our history is quote unquote whitewashed, right? So, so it's an intense subject, right? You know, but um, I don't know. Let's see a couple people in the house. What do you guys think? How do you feel about the topic? Let me know. Let me know.
personally, it saddens my heart. I think we need systemic change. Um, you see these policies, uh, you see this all being a result of systemic policies that have not been addressed, that continue to wreak havoc on society. Um, you know, we've just passed the uh, one year anniversary of George Floyd, like I said earlier. A thousand people have been murdered by police in the year since George Floyd was murdered. A thousand year, a thousand people were killed by the police the year before. So nothing has changed as a result of all those Black Lives Matter protests, all those people getting shot in the face by peaceful people, getting shot in the face by police with rubber bullets. Reporters, seven reporters, got blinded from being shot in the face by police. So people are out peacefully peacefully protesting police brutality. Reporters are filming it. And the police shoot these reporters in the face. That's the country we're living in right now. That's mind-blowing. You know, this Loyalty is very interesting. Inside. I went to school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was there for about three or four years. I'm in college and not once, not even one time was it even mentioned that this had happened. I lived there and didn't even know that that was the home of Black Wall Street that had been destroyed and how historically relevant it was to me. I drove through those neighborhoods. They look very desolate today. I didn't even know what I was looking at at the time. It's just incredible to know that. And these teachers, a lot of them were from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I could have been, very well been taught by either they, they themselves or their grandchildren, or I really don't know, but it's just crazy how I went to school there and no one ever taught that. I mean, in fact, I was told that and I had to take their history at that university. And that even though I had already took up African-American history, because they told me that my history, the African-American history, um, didn't count for the university. Wow. Your history doesn't count. Oh, my God. Like, talk about a slap in the face. Wow. Thank you for that. That's intense. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I just learned, like I just said, I just learned about this last year. Right. And, and I love history, um, especially, you know. I've always been a, you know, kind of a, a advocate for the underdog. So I always like to give a voice to the oppressed. And I always like to try to speak truth to power. Right. So, you know, the police homicide thing really gets my goat because that's, you know, it's not protecting and serving. You know, our foreign policy kills me because we're not bringing democracy abroad. We're dropping bombs. You know, you don't make friends with bullets and, and bombs. You don't. Um, so every action has a reaction, right? You throw a pebble in a puddle, you send out a ripple. You don't know where that ripple is going to end, and you don't really know the re you know the repercussions of it. And that's what we just keep doing again and again. Even after we see the repercussions, we just keep doing the same thing. And that's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing and hoping for a different result. So, are our politicians insane, or do they just not care? And they're just, they have an agenda, and they're just, you know, giving us lip service. I don't know. It's few and far between politicians that I have trusted. You know, 50% of our Congress are millionaires, right? So they don't represent us. They do not represent us um, at all.
there's also another harrowing statistic is for every member of Congress here in the US, there are five lobbyists. So when was the last time you went to Congress to Washington DC to speak with your Congress member? Well, guess what? Five people every day sent by corporations are going. They have your congressperson's ear. So all day, every day, being taken out to lunch, yada, 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 expensive lunches and dinners, cocktail parties to get them to pass their policies. And, you know, when was the last time we as the public put that pressure on our politicians? And it's by design that we can't, right? We we're just told we can't go to work. Businesses are told they can't be open. So, you know, does that mean that you can afford to go travel and meet with your, probably not. So none of it's by accident. None of it's by accident. It's all done by design. Um, same with, with internet censorship. That's no accident. You know, you mentioned a few different topics and, and you'll, you'll be shut down and canceled. Um, in, in a society with free speech, right? And that's a very, very dangerous slippery slope in and of itself. Um, you know, unless you're inciting a riot or screaming fire in a movie theater, you should be able to allowed to, you know, demonstrate your right to free speech. Um, the answer for speech that you don't like is more speech, not less, not limiting speech. If you hear somebody say something that's, that's you know, a total crock of, you know, completely false, then counter it by by doing a, a podcast or a show that gives the correct information and, and always give your sources so that people can see the information themselves, right? Because opinions are like a-holes. Everybody's got one. And, you know, I'm glad if your opinions make you feel warm and fuzzy, but I like to talk about facts, not alternative facts, verifiable facts. So... That's where I come from. So thank you people for tuning in. I just, I just, you know, when I realized this was the hundredth year anniversary of the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, not riots, massacre, right? Because this is where the city government joined with the Ku Klux Klan and the army, right? They firebombed these buildings from above, from the air. So it was an orchestrated, concerted effort. Orchestrated, and, oops, stereo just glitched on me. It was an orchestrated and concerted effort by the military, the local government, the Ku Klux Klan, and angry white mobs who, who were probably members of the police, the military, and the Ku Klux Klan. So we've got more messages here. Who do we got? Who do we got on the line? We got Cat A List. Hi, I hope you can hear me okay. Um, yeah, I did know about the uh, Tulsa thing. Um, I didn't know how bad it was though. Like, I didn't know how. Oh, this doesn't look like it's recording. Alright, I'm gonna keep going just in case you can hear me, right? Um, I hear you. Yeah, I didn't know how much the government was involved with actually providing this mob mentality. And actually just wanting to sort of have this power shift. Um, I think the thing that bothers me as well is just the people in this room. The amount of times I've heard like people of, of like a certain demographic kind of denying um, that there's been any problems for black people and saying that it's like we're 
like playing the victim. Um, hang on. Yeah, no, Kat, thank you so much for your comment. And I see you got another comment. I can't wait to play that. But I just want to comment on what you said. Yeah, people that are like, oh, slavery was a long time ago. The black people need to like pull themselves up with their own bootstraps. Yeah, well, every time they make a bootstrap, somebody comes and cuts it off. So this is a prime example. And, and, and another part of this history is that um, after the Civil War, a bunch of black people fled to Oklahoma because it was known to be, you know, a place where you could get semi-fair treatment. So, so this is even more brutal than what we think, right? People were going there as a sanctuary. And then the government of Oklahoma was like, oh, hell no. Oh, hell no. Uh-uh. Not on my watch. Like, that's... So that is brutal. So this is terrorism, racism to the nth degree. Domestic terrorism. It's the worst domestic terrorism in the U.S. It's the first time that there was an aerial bombing in the U.S. Right? So this, this was aerial warfare. In the U.S., never talked about, never talked about, never learned this in any history class, not even in college. Uh, yeah, so it's, you know, I wish there were more, I just wish there were more people in this room that actually would benefit from hearing this and go away with uh, some information whereby they wouldn't be so glib and flippant and kind of xenophobic so yeah but thank you for the information i appreciate it cat thank you so much for the message you know you can share this um even after the fact you can share this um this podcast right it'll it'll be on my profile forever um, i'm also going to put it on anchor fm so then it's going to go out to spotify uh, youtube uh, it, I, I'm on 20 different podcast platforms all over the world, so people are going to hear this. Um, and also, please do check out my podcast. You can you can um, you can just hit my profile, and I think there's a link there. But it's and another thing with Dave on any different podcast platform. Um, I'm on uh, Amazon Music now, so you can even tell Alexa to play my uh, podcast now, which I'm pretty stoked about. Um, even though I'm not spike stoked about you know. Alexa spying on you. <laughs> I'm stoked that you can hear my podcast that way. Uh, yeah, Amazon Music, um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, you name it. I'm on 20 some odd different platforms. 3% of my listeners are coming from India. 4% of my listeners coming from India. 3% from Canada. Got listeners in Germany, Bahrain, um, Australia, Argentina all over the place super stoked but would love your support people that are listening um trying to share you know often unreported news like this that i think is really 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 important for people to hear um so you know you're picking what picking up what i'm throwing down digging what i'm doing please do share with friends subscribe follow share with friends I'm everywhere. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, you name it. Got another message coming in hot. Cat A list. Thank you. I totally uh, just followed you. Um, hopefully this gets out before you go. Um, but yeah, the other thing, glaring thing, is just the amount of um, press 
that the um that the holocaust gets it's almost as if they're just trying to scrub the slate clean of that like don't worry about anything else look over here this is the only thing that matters and um yeah it's it's like covering a multitude of sins literally uh yeah yeah, Kat, I don't want to get into that too much um, because that's a whole nother topic. But yeah, I'll do a whole nother podcast on what's going on in Israel right now. Um, the history of that, how Israel became Israel by England, giving what was known as Palestine to the Jews. But how did England have the right to give somebody's country to somebody else, right? <laughs> England never had a deed to the land. so pretty trippy like i don't know shouldn't shouldn't israel have been put where where east germany is right like what did the palestinians do they didn't do anything jews jews and and uh, arabs were living peacefully in what we know of as uh, that area now you know israel and palestine they were living fine there you know so if we didn't you know create the state of israel there they they would have been going on fine like they had been for thousands of years in a fully functioning society totally interblended intermarried no problem and it was peaceful so you know why didn't we give east germany to the jews for their home state that would have made more sense wouldn't it you know take the land from the people that persecuted them and give that to them to me that would have made a lot more sense i don't know call me crazy we got sports rumble coming in hot what's going on sports rumble are you kidding me have you not done your history uh, which part of history are you talking about, my friend? Um, I was referring to the Balfour Declaration uh, that was drawn up. So, not sure what you're referring to. I agree when you're talking about the um, Palestine thing. It, it really shook me. Like, I saw a video of a little girl crying about her neighborhood being destroyed. And I thought, wow, this isn't about race at all, is it? It never has been. It's just that they use that to demoralize a people and stop them from getting back on their feet. Um, and so the system itself is racist, but it is a tool of further derision on something that's about power. That's how I see it. I hope that's not too crazy a thing to say. Yeah, exactly. Distractions. Um, yep, absolutely. Um, so here's a... a brief description of the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was a public statement issued by the British government in 1917 during the First World War announcing support for the establishment of a quote-unquote national home for the Jewish people, end quote, in Palestine, then an Ottoman region with a small minority Jewish population. So there it is. You need to go back and realize that the state of Israel has always been there. It has just not been recognized up until the point that it was starting to be recognized with that agreement. But the state of Israel has always been there. You need to go back into history books and really understand what we are talking about. Because until you do that, you have no room to discuss this topic.
Okay. Well, so I disagree with having to have room to discuss a topic. I mean, I was just quoted a, I just quoted the Balfour Declaration, which in 1917 carved out a Jewish state, and it, as part of that, there was ethnic cleansing. 800,000 Arabs were purged from their homelands. A lot of them are still living as refugees to this very day, right? So, you know, in you know the 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 in in um, Israel, they talk about the right of return, right? Well, what about the right of return for those people? I mean, before there was a quote unquote state where, you know, the basically the West redrew the map, all peoples were living peacefully there. Right. So I don't I don't deny that there were Jewish settlements and towns and, you know, the the religious history and all that. But they were living peacefully in the same area. There was no wall. There was no out, you know, outdoor prison that we call, you know, the Gaza Strip. You know, I mean. I don't know. It's see, it gets it gets off the rails really quick because people get so emotional about this topic um you know but it's one of the world's worst humanitarian crises that has been going on my entire life you know i was born in 1967 so the 1967 war israel seized a bunch more land they said that they were attacked defending themselves but it was a well-planned offensive that's historical fact now um and they seized a bunch of land and that seizing of land has never stopped so it's hard to be on the right side of history when you keep stealing land, right? Like I just saw a picture the other day. It was an elderly Palestinian couple, one of them in a wheelchair, looking at the house they used to live in that they had been kicked out of. And a young Jewish family from Brooklyn, New York, was living in their house. So there's no way you can tell me that's okay. Because if you're telling me that's okay, then the Native Americans have the right to kill us and kick us out of our homes because they were here first. Sorry, we're living here. We have to learn how to peacefully coexist, right? It's the international community has condemned this as war crimes. I mean, just frick, Google anything. Jimmy Carter says it's, you know, a modern-day apartheid. You're missing key points. They were not moved out of their homes based on that declaration. You know why they were moved out of their homes? Because what we now call Palestinians thought they were going to be able to take Israel by storm. So they told what we now call Palestinians, leave your home and then we will have you back in your homes later. So they, some of them left their homes. And those are the ones that are misplaced. Oh, but nobody wants to talk about that. Um, really? So, okay. Here we are, 1948 Palestinian exodus. Uh, this is just Wikipedia. And, you know, Wikipedia can can be edited. So this could be false information, but then somebody would re-edit it, right? And I'm just grabbing the first thing I found. 1948 Palestinian exodus occurred when more than 700,000 Palestinian Arabs, about half of pre-war Palestine's Arab population, 
fled or were expelled from their homes during the 1948 Palestine, Palestine War. The exodus was a central component of the fracturing, dispossession, and displacement of Palestinian society known as the Nakba. So Israel had a word for it, in which between 400 and 600 Palestinian villages were destroyed and Palestinian history erased. And also refers to the wider period of war itself and the subsequent oppression up to the present day. The precise number of refugees, many of whom settled in refugee camps in neighboring states, is a matter of dispute. But around 80% of the Arab inhabitants of what became Israel, half of the Arab total of mandatory pal Palestine, left or were expelled from their homes. About 250,000 to 300,000 Palestinians fled or were expelled before the Israeli Declaration of Independence in May 1948, a fact which was named as a casus belli for the entry of the Arab League into the country, sparking the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. So history, bro, quit watching Fox and MSNBC. You know, the causes are also subject of fundamental disagreement among historians. Factors involved in the exodus include Jewish military forces, destruction of Arab villages, psychological warfare, fears of another massacre by Zionist militias after Der Yassin massacre, um, which caused many to leave out of panic, direct expulsion orders by Israeli authorities, the voluntary self-removal of the wealthier classes, collapse in Palestinian leadership and Arab evacuation orders, and an unwillingness to live under Jewish control. Later, a series of laws passed by the first Israeli government prevented Arabs who had left from returning to their homes or claiming property. They, and many of their descendants, remain refugees. The expulsion of the Palestinians has since been described by some historians as ethnic cleansing. While others dispute this charge, the status of the refugees, and in particular, whether Israel will now allow them the right to return to their homes or compensate them, are key issues in the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So unless we address that, there is no peace, right? If, if, if your house gets stolen, are you going to be down with peace or are you going to be wanting revenge, right? So the events of the 1948 are commemorated by Palestinians, both in the Palestinian territories and elsewhere on May 15th, a date known as Nakba Day. There we go. No, Dave. It's hard to be on the right part of history when you're lying about the facts, which you are doing currently right here, sir. Dude, I'm, I'm reading from the internet. I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm not making anything up. I haven't told you my opinion at all. I'm reading from reports. I don't know what you're talking about. To believe anything you find on Wikipedia, one is funny. To believe anything you find on Google is even funnier. Because we know that Google stacks the deck. But to believe anything you find on Wikipedia is ridiculous. Okay, well. How do I deal with somebody that says anything you find on Google is ridiculous? There is no way to have a conversation there, right? So, um... I don't know, bro. How do you have a conversation if nothing I find on Google is 
is uh worthy and i, I preface preface the whole thing by saying you know that uh, i'm reading this from wikipedia wikipedia can be edited so if you read something on it on wikipedia that you see is not true go back and put the true information in and if what you put, put is not true somebody else will correct it it's constantly updated right so i'm not saying that this is fact i st i started with that whole thing um but look up these things you know look up uh nakba n-a-k-b-a you know also known as the palestinian catastrophe so you know i've heard what you're saying many times bro and it's what i've heard from our mainstream media i call them the lamestream media it's what i hear from them on the reg but you know what is not reported is the palestinian point of view like ever i think my favorite thing about those contributions was that he actually thought that telling somebody to leave their home and then telling them that they couldn't come in and giving their house away was okay. Yeah, right. It shows the level of indoctrination and brainwashing by our, what I call again, our lamestream media. You know, I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying that you watch that, you know, sports rumble guy, because, you know, you were dissing Google. So maybe you go to other sources, but I don't know what those sources are. Um, you know, I got a bunch of reporters that I like, uh, Max Blumenthal, award-winning journalist, Aaron Matei, award-winning journalist, Abby Martin. She went and lived in Palestine and in Jerusalem for two months, did a four-part documentary series. Um, Jimmy Carter, I trust his opinion. Um, Oliver Stone, you know, the untold history of the United States. He's done some great investigational work, um, you know. Glenn Greenwald, another fantastic award-winning journalist, investigative journalist. So, I, you know, I don't watch MSNBC. I don't watch CNN, otherwise known as the CIA News Network. I don't watch Fox News because I know what you're going to get if you watch any of those. You're going to get pro-war. You know, do you ever hear them talking about the war in Iraq or Afghanistan? We've been there for 20 years. Let's talk about Memorial Day. These poor soldiers of ours lied into a war, weapons of mass destruction by the evil Bush family, the Bush crime family. And then we're still there 20 years later. You know, uh, Biden has the balls to mention in a statement today, oh, 7,600 and something soldiers lost their lives, U.S. soldiers, which is horrible. But how many Afghans in the last 20 years? We don't want to talk about that number. And why are we there again? We don't want to talk about that either. We're there for lithium. They have the world's largest supply of lithium for electric car batteries. Sports Rumble coming in hot. You can't trust Jimmy Carter as far as you can throw him. Do you know why you can't trust Jimmy Carter? Here's why. Because Jimmy Carter is one of the most anti-Jewish people as far as presidents you can find. Hating Jews? Yeah, that's Jimmy Carter. That's also Bill Clinton. That's also Barack Obama. And we know this for facts. So, don't give me Jimmy Carter. Okay, I don't know anything that you said is a fact, and I would be happy to see any articles that you have, um, provide links to information. I'm all about learning. I'm all about sources, right? I'm telling you what I'm reading from. I'm giving you links to documentaries, 
So, you know, my, my, uh, my Instagram's available. Drop me some links. I'll check them out. Um, but you know, I'm not, I'm not for either of the two parties. They're both full of shit and bought out by corporations. Um, but how was, how was Barack Obama anti-Israel? Let me, should I Google how much money we gave Israel under the Obama administration? Did you know that in the COVID stimulus bill, it was slipped in there to give $4 billion of aid to Israel? Like, why? I thought that was to help the U.S. The Bush family as well. Jew hating. Or Trumbull. The, the, the only president, the only president that probably didn't hate Jews was our last president, Donald Trump. Okay? So... It's real interesting. Real interesting. Okay, now we're getting deep in the weeds. Every president except for Donald Trump hated Jews. Then why did they all give Israel a ton of money and military support? Can you riddle me that? Why, 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 why? Makes no sense, bro. Learn your history. Did he say electric car batteries? Because, I mean, I'm really confused right now about how that's appropriate in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, the whole Elon Musk situation, um, about how, like, electric cars are meant to be uh, the thing of, like, the future. That's... I didn't know, man. It's beyond disappointing, to be honest. But, like, wow. Wow. And why are we still digging up the earth for stuff to get us around? Well, because of greed and antiquated thinking. Um, it's interesting. I just read an article where um, a hedge fund is pressuring the change of the board of directors of Exxon and Mobil and they're putting in place people that are pro-green energy and a transformation to sustainability because the board of directors of Exxon has done nothing to reduce emissions. And so the shareholders themselves are demanding it. So this is a first time revolt. So yeah, um, not to mention Elon Musk is changing the game, but yeah, it's kind of scary. Elon Musk said, we will coup anybody, meaning we will overthrow any government. And that's scary because you know, he needs lithium for his batteries. So I guess he's in support of us staying in Afghanistan and going into other countries that have lithium. Yeah. So any your cell phone needs lithium, any electric battery. Now, basically, all the best batteries are lithium. So Dick Cheney himself said, we'll be in Afghanistan for 50 years. So he knew something, right? He knew something. And he wasn't just talking about staying there so that CIA can smuggle heroin out which we know they're doing, since the U.S. military landed in Afghanistan, we have become, or they have become, the leading producer of heroin in the world. Let that sit in. After the U.S. military got there, they became the leading producer of opium and heroin in the world, produced 90% of the world's heroin. Let that sink in. Opium is the largest uh, ingredient in pain-killing medications, and before that, guess where the leading production area was for opium? 
Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand, which was known as the Golden Triangle. And some hypothesize that the Vietnam War went on so long because the CIA was smuggling opium out of Laos and Cambodia and Thailand, which are right next door to Vietnam, right? There's been many movies that have talked about this. I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying it could be that the CIA was smuggling out opium in body bags. That would explain why the war went on for so long, because they were making so much money that they could then use to fund their black operations, right? We know that the Bush family was party to this with Bill Clinton in the Iran-Contra scandal, where they were smuggling plane loads of cocaine into Mena, Arkansas, the most remote airstrip in, in the United States, in order to sell that cocaine on the streets of the U.S. to U.S. citizens, then take that money and buy weapons and support the Sandinistas to overthrow a democratic government in Nicaragua and also to support rebel factions um, to, fight, to give weapons to Iraq to fight against Iran, all against the wishes of Congress. So Congress says, no, the CIA says, fuck you, we'll, we'll get our own money and we'll do it anyway. Who was in charge of that program? George Bush Sr. Where did they land the planes full of cocaine? Mena, Arkansas. Who was governor of Arkansas? Bill Clinton. How did Bill Clinton, governor of the poorest state in the country, who had never really done jack shit as governor, nothing noteworthy, never stood out, was just a member of a bunch of, you know, um, noteworthy for being part of a bunch of scandals, right? The Whitewater, the Rose Law Firm, yada, 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 yada. Um, how does he rise to the prominence to become president, right? He did business with the Bush clan. Unbelievable. Yeah. And then you got Georgie Bush, you know, lying to get us into war in Afghanistan and Iraq, which we're still there. Happy Memorial Day. Awesome. Hope none of our soldiers die today. Hope nobody dies today. It's just so brutal, you know, but uh, it kills me when people just come back with, you know, parroting the mainstream media. Because um, in our government, we just don't, in our country, you know, we don't hear anything because we're, we get wartime media. So, you know, what channel are you going to find that's speaking against the war, right? We know these wars, we're, we were lied into both of them. But none of the state mainstream stations have spoken out, have said, oh, shoot, we got it wrong. Our bad. None of them are talking about, hey, let's, let's get out of there. None of them are talking about what to do. Um, so crazy. Looks like I got a couple links on my Instagram. So let me check that because, uh, you know, I'm open to new information. So let me take a peek around here. Okay, so this article is by Yorish.com. Um, Jimmy Carter, quote, or uh, colon, I really, really hate Israel, but it's not in quotes, so that's not a quote. 
Um, you don't even have to read between the lines anymore to see Jimmy Carter's utterly loathing of all things is Israel. Former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, during a visit in Damascus on Tuesday, called for Israel to lift completely its blockade of the Gaza Strip. What's wrong with that? They're blockading medical uh, supplies, equipment. Uh, it, it, oh, my God. They're just start blocking deliveries. Carter made the remarks in the forum of a declaration known as the Biders, who met with Syrian President Bashar Assad and Hamas leaders in Syria. So factions within Hamas are extremists, maybe. Hamas was democratically elected. Um, please note the, the place of the forum, Syria, one of the world's greatest human rights violators. Wait, how is, how is Syria one of the greatest human rights violators? You know the chlorine gas attack has been debunked. That did not happen. There was an investigative board non-partial third-party international board that investigated that found it to have been a faked attack so how is syria is one of the greatest human rights violators i would say it's the u.s with a thousand military bases abroad we've been in iraq for 20 years we've killed half a million iraqis we've been in afghanistan for 20 years we have no idea how many we've killed there um you know and our occupation in both of those places basically led to the creation of al-qaeda and isis so holy shit and why are we in syria trump even said we're gonna take their oil dude do you know in syria we bombed and destroyed the world's longest operating outdoor market this place had been in operation for 1500 years we fucking bombed it it was like a it was like a you know an open-air market like a farmer's market nothing uh nothing military about it so so, yeah, I haven't investigated who wrote this, but it's a gaslighting hit piece, you know? She's telling, saying something that Jimmy Carter said, but it's not in quotes. Jimmy Carter, I really, really hate Israel. Okay? So, Jimmy Carter never said that. It's not in quotes. So, you know? Yeah, who doesn't want to stop the blockade of the Gaza Strip? Why can't they get medical supplies? Why? Why is the Gaza Strip an outdoor prison? Why are they chained in? How come if you're uh, in, a, you know, if you live in Brooklyn, you can move to Israel within two days, you can get a permit to carry a weapon, but a Palestinian can't ever get a permit to carry a weapon. Dude. Man, I don't hate anybody. I'm not talking about Jews. I'm talking about Zionists, right? And that's a fundamentalist group political group in israel right i'm not i'm not talking about jewish people at all there's a lot of people jewish people they're speaking out ab about this occupation so yeah now anyway yep but anybody else got a comment if not i'm probably gonna wrap it been on here for may 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 the poet okay May the poet, do you got a comment before we wrap this up about the Israeli occupation of Palestine, the ever-increasing size of Israel, and the fact that they keep seizing people's homes? Um, one of the things I mentioned is just the other day I saw this picture, and it was heartbreaking. It was an, a Palestinian couple who had been evicted from their homes 
the guys in a wheelchair and the wife is pushing the wheelchair and they stopped in front of their old home and they're looking at it and uh, across the fence it's this harrowing picture because then you've got this jewish couple that's living in their home that moved there from brooklyn new york so here's this palestinian family ripped out of their house so a jewish family from brooklyn new york can move in and i don't know if anybody knows everybody knows this but if you move to israel you get to live tax-free for the first 10 years. So they're like, move here, help us expand the occupied territories. We'll rip somebody there out of their house and you'll live tax-free. And you can pack a weapon and shoot people and we won't prosecute you. Instead, we'll, we'll throw a celebration. Yeah, yeah, baby, yeah. Okay, so what do you got to say on that, May the Poet? May, May the Poet. She must be doing some research right now because she's a little bit like me, a little bit of a research junkie. So um, there's also another agreement about Israel that I'd like to bring up. I think it's the Pikes Agreement. Um, I'll look that up. Sykes-Picot Agreement on Israel. The British and French controlled countries were divided by the Sykes-Picot line, the agreement allocated to the UK control of what is today southern Israel and Palestine, Jordan and southern Iraq, and an additional small area that included the ports of Hafia, Haifa, and uh, Acre to allow access to the Mediterranean. So, wowzy. This thing about the uh, the house, the picture, it does eerily parallel the um, the incident where you were talking about the Tulsa race riots and saying that uh, people were walking and seeing that um, that the white people were wearing the jewelry that they'd stolen from their houses. Um, you believe that? I can't help but notice the similarity there. Um, yeah, I, I'm just kind of really shocked. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's brutal. So here's here we go, the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration are two documents that gave Israel to the Jewish, created the, uh, the Jewish state of Israel. Um, so imperialistic colonial powers that had nothing to do with the area and should have had no right to, to for determination at all. So a bunch of aristocratic Westerners drew these plans up in some boardroom in the West somewhere. So Sykes-Picot Agreement is also called the Asia Minor Agreement. Oh, and this is not from Wikipedia. This is from Britannica, Britannica.com event slash Sykes-Picot Agreement. So, otherwise known as the um, Asia Minor Agreement, May 1916. Secret convention made during World War I between Great Britain and France with the assent of Imperial Russia for the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire, right? So there's your underlying goal. The West wanted to dissect the Ottoman Empire. The agreement led to the division 
of Turkish-held Turkish Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Palestine into various French and British administered areas, meaning occupied. Negotiations were begun in November 1915, and the final agreement took its name from the chief negotiators from Britain and France, Sir Mike Sykes, Mark Sykes, and Francois Georges Picard. Um, Sergei Dmitrievich Sezonov was also present to represent Russia, the third member of the Triple Entente or the three-party agreement, I'm thinking. That's probably what that means. So here they're showing a map of, you know, Turkey, Armenia, Cyprus, Palestine, Syria, you know, Syria, Iraq, Kuwait, Arabia. And, you know, these aristocratic, aristocratic white people decided that they would, you know, draw up on a map what they thought was best for everybody else. So in the background and provisions, in the midst of World War I, the question arose of what would happen to the Ottoman territories if the war led to the disintegration of the sick man of Europe. The Triple Entente moved to secure their respective interests in the region. They had agreed in the March 1915 Constantinople Agreement to give Russia Constantinople, Istanbul, and areas around it which would provide access to the Mediterranean Sea. France, meanwhile, had a number of economic investments and strategic relationships in Syria, especially in the area of Aleppo, while Britain wanted secure access to India through the Suez Canal and the Persian Gulf. Because, of course, you know, they wanted to co continue to oppress and persecute India. Um, it was out of the need to coordinate British and French interests in these regions that the Sykes-Picot Agreement was born. Its provisions were as follows. Russia would acquire the Armenian provinces of Erzurum, Trebizon, uh, Van, and Bitlis, with some Kurdish territory to the southeast. France should acquire Lebanon and the Syrian littoral, Adena, Cilicia, and the hinterland adjacent to Russia's share. The hinterland including Aintab, Urfa, Mardin, Diarkaber and Mosul. Great Britain should, should acquire southern Mesopotamia, including Baghdad and also the Mediterranean ports of Haifa and Akko, or Acre. Um, between the French and the British acquisitions, there should be a confederation of Arab states or a single independent Arab state divided into French and British spheres of influence. Alangs and Alag. Alexandretta, or yeah, should be a free port, and Palestine, because of the holy places, should be under an international regime. So there it is right there. That was the first declaration that tried to draw it up, and then the Balfour Declaration jumped in and tried to seal the deal. No, I just actually woke up. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Anyway, I am a junkie, but I'm not exactly focused as of yet. Somebody just dropped something on my ceiling that woke me up out of a dead sleep. Uh, anyway, okay, so try to wake up here. I only heard Israel and Zionism, and I'm partially awake. Now, if people would stop dropping things on my ceiling, however, I wouldn't have to go into this freaking routine of banging on the ceiling or going up there and beating the crap out of somebody. 
But hang on. I've got to do a little research if you want me to join this conversation. I'm not quite there. No worries, mate. And then immediately following this article is another article also in Britannica about the Balfour Declaration, which I was just discussing, United Kingdom 1917. Let's see, Balfour Declaration, Statement of British Support for the Establishment in Palestine of a National Home for the Jewish People. It was made in a letter form from Arthur James Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, to Lionel Walter Rothschild, second Baron Rothschild, the world's richest family, a leader of the Anglo-Jewish community. Though the precise meaning of the correspondence has been disputed, its statements were generally contradictory to both the Sykes-Picot Agreement, a secret convention between Britain and France, and the Hussein McMahon correspondence and exchange of letters between British High Commissioner in Egypt, Sir Henry McMahon and Hussein Ibn Afai, the, the then Emir of Mecca, which in turn contradicted one another. Um, the Balfour Declaration issued through the continued efforts of Chain, Chain Wiseman and Nahum Sakalal, Zionist leaders in London fell short of the expectations of the Zionists who had asked for the reconstitution of Palestine as the Jewish national home. The declaration specifically stipulated that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. The document, however, said nothing of the political or national rights of these communities and did not refer to them by name. Nevertheless, the declaration aroused enthusiastic hopes among Zionists and seemed the fulfillment of the aims of the World Zionist Organization. Bam. And there you so have it. The other thing that I wanted to bring up is also like how on this app I've spoken to so many people from Iran. And um, obviously... Iran and like a couple of people from Israel. It's just it's just different, isn't it? It's being able to actually talk to people from those places and find out what's going on. Oh my god, I don't know. So many feels. Oh, but the battery, the battery in the phone, that's a killer. I don't know what to do about that ethically. I'm gonna have to go uh I'm going to have to go no contact and just live off the earth somewhere. Nobody can find me. <laughs> I don't know. Cat A-list. Yeah. Well, I was talking to somebody in Iran, and um, and I asked them if they are spied on. And he said yes. So I stopped talking about politics with him because I didn't want him to get, you know, in trouble. But I also want you to know that we in the U.S. are spied on. That's what Edward Snowden is a fugitive for. Right. He can't come back to the U.S. or he'll be put in jail for the rest of his life or sentenced to death. Why? Because he published war crimes that the U.S. had committed in, you know, and the fact that they were spying on their own citizens, which is illegal. You know, we can spy on international citizens and we can have other countries spy on us and then trade information. But we're not supposed to just straight up tap into people's phone lines. And he totally outed that the government is doing that. Uh, they were they busted that they were working with AT&T in the headquarters of San Francisco AT&T office 
the main phone lines had been tapped into. So every phone call through AT&T in San Francisco. So mind blow, right? And, you know, the, it's also called the no such agency, right? They don't even want us to know it exists. And nobody did before Edward Snowden. But the one office in Utah has 70,000 employees and they're building another office that's bigger. So we're going to have 140, 150,000 employees of the NSA to spy on us and to subvert our democratic practices. You know, Obama jailed more reporters than any other president, than all presidents before him combined under the Espionage Act. So by reporters writing out, writing, speaking a truth to power, he had them thrown in jail, arrested and thrown in jail. So this is, you know, Donald Trump did not come out of a vacuum. I did a, I did a podcast called Trump derangement syndrome and how Obama led us here, you know, and it didn't start with Obama, you know, it started back with, uh, with Reagan really. And then Clinton really stepped up the game. Um, and then Bush Jr., you know, took it through the end zone, you know, like, ah, oh, fuck it. We could start offensive wars internationally. Woohoo! Let's go get that oil. You know, the gloves are coming off. Right? Crazy time. Damn it. Phone call. I got to take it. It's important. I uh, just missed a call. I got to return. Crap. Why does this always happen when I start listening to something? <laughs> go figure. Go figure. I don't know. But thanks for tuning in, folks. You know, I think I'm going to wrap it up here. I've been on for a little minute for a minute here now. Um, let's see. Uh, let's check out our statistics. I've been on for an hour and a half. We've had 35 people come through the room. Seven people at any given time. Seven was our peak listener ship. And um, yeah, so I appreciate everybody that tuned in. This has been Dave Smith with another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. And another thing. Right. So I've got a podcast on every platform. I'm on YouTube, on my YouTube channel. And another thing with Dave under must see, I've got uh, about 1500 documentaries that I've compiled about all this stuff. So if you want to go down a rabbit hole, um, please check out my YouTube channel. Please do subscribe and please share it with other curious truth seeking people. Um, I tell people to seek the truth. I don't tell people what the truth is. So I don't tell people what to think. I just ask them to think, right? So thank you very much, people, for tuning in. Please do follow, subscribe, and share. I'm on all social media. And another thing with Dave. Much love. Happy May 31st, everybody. All right. Thanks for tuning in to another episode and another thing with Dave. Please follow, subscribe, and share. I'm on all social media and another thing with Dave. And keep seeking the truth.